This is Curious and Quirky with ideators and course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. We help curious leaders change the world. This is a fast-paced take on what's hot in the world of business through the quirky lens of operations, supply chain, marketing, innovation, platform strategy, business models, agility, and much more. Each ideation will have five minutes. Enjoy these quirky insights and stay curious. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another monthly event of Curious and Quirky with Caltech Executive Education. We thank you for joining us this month, and as ever, we will do a fast-paced roundup of events across world through supply chain, lens of marketing, platform strategy, innovation, agility, and much more. As you know, we actually have all of our course leaders here. And to kick it off, obviously, usually we start with Alan, but I do want to mention two things. First, today, my colleague should be extremely happy that I'm still here because today is the cricket finals of Indian Premier League being played in Dubai between two of my favorite teams. So it shows how much I love my colleagues, number one. Number two, I'm also dressed peacefully for them on a Friday morning, right? So with these two, Alan, are you still stuck on a container ship off the coast of Long Beach? No, I'm not on a container ship this week, but uh, boy, I have a lot to share about uh, what's going on in the supply chain world. If you remember in our last session, we talked about the number of containers on container ships, and we calculated over 800,000 containers were stuck from ports from Vancouver to Ensenada. Um, it's actually worse, so we're not going to go through that today in the supply chain world. But what we are going to talk about in the supply chain world is what's going on in the world of warehousing. So goods typically will move from a supplier or from a raw material producer into some form of a warehouse, and then they go to manufacturers and oftentimes in warehouses after that. Some of the warehouses are actually in the retail stores, and if one thinks about products on shelf on shelves in retail stores, that's in a form, a form of warehousing. And like all history, global supply chain tends, issues tend to repeat themselves. If you take a look back in the 19, period of 1940, roughly up to 2020, or about 80 years, you'll notice that automation and manufacturing really took enormous leaps. In fact, it was kind of a version of Moore's Law, except it took about every three years, the productivity just about doubled in manufacturing organizations, uh, particularly from 1950 after World War II, because we had a lot of engineers thinking about how to make things better, how to produce things better. And, uh, and then there was also an enormous amount of pent-up demand. So we saw about every three years, we saw about a doubling of productivity in the average manufacturing company. And that was mostly the result of automation that was created by manufacturing and industrial and process engineers. And so it's really interesting is when you take a look at the state of manufacturing, you see today automated equipment in manufacturing companies, robotics. Uh, we have clients where they spend the day shift setting up the machines and then they go home and the machines produce all night long on the second and the third shift. So they have, you know, eight hours of setup time to set up the machines and the rest of the 24 hours is actually the robots and the automation producing product uh, from the prior setups. So we're seeing, continue to see just enormous growth in productivity as a result of automation. Even last year in the pandemic year, 
factory productivity increased over the previous year. To me, that's just amazing. And we still have got product out. The, today, we struggle with some labor and some talent shortages. But in the pandemic year, we still were able to improve productivity. Now, where the automation experts have set their sights is in warehousing. Warehousing has jokingly been said to be the second oldest industry in the history of the world. Warehousing is providing time and place utility of materials and products for later downstream consumption. The benefits of automation and warehousing is that it reduces labor. And the reduction of labor isn't about cost. It's really more about availability and it's about training of warehousing professionals. So in a warehouse, the five major functions are you receive material, you then put material away, you store material, then you pick material out of the warehouse, and then you consolidate it and distribute it to either internal uses or to customers or consumers or downstream distribution intermediaries. Well, almost all of that has been driven by labor since the beginning of time. Now there's a new breed of intelligent robots that are being produced by companies like Vecna Robots and Sarcos Robotics and others. And these robots now have the ability to independently and autonomously go down an aisle of racks and pick material out. So in other words, they can run 24 hours a day without a break, without lunch, and all they need is a little bit of maintenance, a little bit of battery charging periodically. And so Gardner has done some studies on this recently and has reported that there's really a renaissance in automation that's happening as a result of artificial intelligence and machine learning, and it's being attached to the warehousing industry. So a repeat of what happened in manufacturing globally is going to happen now in warehousing and it's already started. The only difference is, is that one of the main reasons for implementing robots in factories was to actually reduce costs. And that's not really the case in warehousing. The real reason is the unavailability of talent, the expansion and the growth. If you take a look at the amount of warehouse and space just in the last 12 years alone, warehouse space in North America has tripled. That's a result of the Amazon effect and other things. What we saw in manufacturing from roughly 1950 to 19 or to 2020 is we saw direct labor and manufacturing jobs going down from about 31, 32% of the total workforce to 20, roughly 2020 being about 6% of the total workforce. But we're going to see that happen in the distribution industry, but in a fraction, probably about 25% of the time. That means in the next 10 to 15 years, most warehouse jobs in the put away, in the picking areas and the distribution areas will be automated by artificial intelligent, machine learning, autonomous, mobile, probably electric, although hydrogen might be an issue, uh, opportunity uh, robots. And distribution jobs are going to literally disappear. What this means for people in those roles is that if you work in a warehouse, uh, this is just not good news for you. If you're a consumer, this means even better customer service long-term because the warehouses will be able to run 24 hours a day. In some cases, even you could run some of them even lights out probably. So you'll end up with better, faster service. So the Amazon effect will actually be the multiplied Amazon effect. So we should expect that this will drive huge customer service opportunities, but it's also going to drive 
some societal changes. So if you don't have a college education or you don't have a craftsman skill set or your children that are thinking they don't want to get either of those, then uh, there's going to be some societal issues that are going to happen from that. So there it is. The next big revolution in supply chain is going to be an automation of all these huge, enormous, and ever-multiplying distribution centers and warehouses. With that, I'll turn it over to Mary. Mary, are you there? Yes, Alan, thank you so much. Well, that was a little less sobering, but still, wow. I'm excited that Amazon might deliver in the same day or like two hours from when I order maybe, huh? Thank you. Uh, my trend is uh, the big 5-0. Walt Disney World Resort is celebrating their 50th anniversary of bringing magic into our lives. 1971, it opened in Florida with just 23 attractions. And now it's the largest park in the world. Over 50 million people attend it every year. So it's huge. And it also is one of the largest media companies. So it is remarkable that one company can touch so many of us from a range of ages, a range of cultures, a range of geographies. And likely all of us have at least one good Disney memory. So if we Contrast that with uh, some of the other companies over the decades that haven't fared so well and kind of are in the business uh, graveyard of such. There's Kodak, Nokia, uh, Xerox, BlackBerry Motion, Blockbuster. You have to be pretty remarkable to do what Disney has done. So Disney obviously is financially very strong. And what I think is, is that there's a couple of ingredients that really have brought that to life for them. One of them is that they went deep into segmentation. Now, originally when Disney opened, they didn't have that philosophy. They said, when you came into the park, it everyone was treated the same. Then they started to realize that people wanted to be treated a bit different. They had different attitudes and behaviors about a park experience, and they were willing to pay for those differences. So everything from the hotel to the meal plans to the private tours, and even uh, when we get into uh, some of us want to pay for tickets to have the morning magic, and others of us pay for tickets to have the after-hours park experience. So they really have uh, started to to be able to customize and tailor all of our experiences. So depending on the different type of your family, you get your wonderful experience. The second great ingredient I think that they have is that they continue to evolve. They work hard to figure it out. And a lot of times they use technology to get there, right? So that they're always trying to improve that guest experience. I remember (laughs) when we first went, we had to have these tickets, a book of tickets, A, B, C, D, and E. Then you had to go out and identify what each of the park rides or attractions were, were they A, B, C, D? So for example, Swiss Family Treehouse was a B and It's a Small World was an E ticket. So the parents, <laughs> it was kind of a, they had to be logistic experts and it kind of sucked the magic out of the day, right? You're like, oh, sorry, can't do that. We don't have any more E tickets. So they evolved and they provided us, of course, with one day passes and they have all these different options for us. And now they're even looking at magic bands where you can access your hotel rooms, you can buy popcorn with it, you can get on the rides. So they're continuing to try to make that experience better. The other not so pleasant experience is the lines. It takes a long time to wait in lines to get on their rides or into their attractions. And and for a long time, they, they kind of created this mystique of, 
the experience was being in the line and being entertained. But finally, they kind of address that problem too. And they have all of the fast passes so that you really do get on the rides a little bit faster. Um, The third ingredient is really being able to expand. They expand it physically, obviously, when they bought a lot of um, geography in, in Florida, a lot more than they did in California. And they were able to expand and to have a lot of different types of parks in that area. The other thing they did to expand was they took the princesses, and they were all individual. They created the collection of princesses. So, And then the famous ride was the Pirates of the Caribbean. And they took that and created a movie, which probably we've all seen the main one and all of its sequels. So they just continue to keep expanding. So now what? Now, how can your company take some of the Disney's experiences and apply them to your business? How can you go deeper into segmentation to really uncover those insights about customers' need? How can you go and and evolve and find those problems that maybe you're causing for your customers or maybe your competitors are and somehow make that a better experience for them in some way? And then how do you expand? How do you expand your assets and your IP into new markets or new channels so that you can continue to, you know, over the decades, become very, very successful like Disney has been. So thank you. And now I'd like to introduce you to one of my good friends and colleagues, um, Brian Mattimore. Hey, Mary, thanks for for that. Geez, I was looking at a Disney strategy map and it was all about the synergy between all their different divisions and offerings the other day. So thank you for bringing that up. Today, this is a sequel to my talk last month, which was based on an article in Harvard Business Review, the September-October issue of Harvard Business Review. The article is entitled, What Evolution Can Teach Us About Innovation? Lessons from the Life Sciences. It was written by a Harvard Business School professor and the CEO of Moderna. So I've called my talk today is uh, Mutation Innovation Part 2. And uh, last month, I talked about the creative processes to generate those ideas. So In the article, they talked about what if, and I expanded on that to talk about questioning assumptions and problem redefinition and even considering silly ideas or worst ideas. This month, I want to talk about the institutional processes beyond the the eureka moment, the quote, big idea. You know, how do you innovate ideas successfully? And we can take cues from nature as well, as this article suggests. How does nature innovate? Well, obviously through mutations. That's the, the big thing. And these are obviously experiments, right? And a lot of these experiments, most of these experiments don't work. So we have to, we can take our cue from that. The big thing though is, in my opinion, that we have to be aware of that breakthrough innovations, and that's really what we're talking about here. We're not talking about incremental innovations or line extensions. Breakthrough innovations take time and there's inherently uncertain, okay? And I think it's important to note in this world of agile, right? You know, we want to fail fast. We want to do all these quicker, better, faster. But I think there's some misconception about agile that you have to, if you will, suspend the result, the need for result when you're doing breakthrough innovation. Now, probably one of the best examples of that is actually Moderna in the development of the vaccine, right? They started with a very interesting question. How do we use messenger RNA to maybe help us create new drugs? That was in 2010 that they started that, okay? And it was through the process of iteration, continuous learning, continuous creativity, right? In 2020, we ended up with the Moderna vaccine, all right? So obviously, they moved from where they were to where they ended up. And thank goodness for the world, they did that. But the point here is that when you do this work, there will be pivoting. 
And when there's pivoting, that freaks people out, right? <laughs> you know, the board doesn't like that. You know, the investors may not like that. But that's the nature of this game, especially when you're creating breakthrough innovation. It is an uncertain proposition. And uh, the best managers or some of the best managers traditionally, it's all about command and control, right? Well, that now is obviously evolving, right? And it's had to evolve because of the quick changing world and quote, uncertain world, right? So the other thing that's really important in this work when you're doing breakthrough innovation is to relieve your teams potentially of ROI. Obviously, this gets to longer term thinking, right? If you have immediate ROIs, then, then this is the enemy of breakthrough innovation. When the CEO of Pfizer, and of course they worked together with Moderna, one was a, an Irish, or excuse me, an Israeli Jew, the other was a, a Turkish Muslim, and they worked together, which was fantastic, right? But the CEO of Pfizer had said, listen teams, I would like you to forget entirely any consideration of ROI as we're developing this vaccine. So do not worry about that, right? So another way to say that is the emphasis on quote, short-term goals. The other thing is that we've moved away from this hero model of innovation to more of a focus on teams. And uh, it's like making a movie. You may have a star, but you've got the directors and you've got the, all the support people to make that thing work. And it really is a, a team effort. So the last thing I want to say is that, you know, this is all about managing uncertainty, right? And uh, because breakthrough innovations are by definition uncertain. So my curious and quirky question for you guys is, how are you managing uncertainty? And this is not only in your business, but, you know, it could be in your life, right? Do you have strategies paradoxically for managing uncertainty, both for yourself, for your team and your organization? And that requires giving up a certain amount of control. Peter, we're on to Peter. <laughs> We've mutated here and now we'll mutate on, on to Peter. Thanks so much. Really interesting to hear all of your insights. For quite a number of years, I was in uh, what you might call corporate foresight roles. And that is a um, function to help the senior executive team look beyond the day-to-day, -day, right? And think about what's going to happen so that they can better prepare and make you know, smart bets. And we call that seeing around corners. I've been trained in that space and I'm constantly looking, what's next? What's coming down the pipe that we should be paying attention to? And so one of the areas that has really caught my attention that I think is worthy of real investigation is this area around what they call NFTs, these non-fungible tokens. And uh, just in the third quarter of this year, we've seen the trading of NFTs exceed $10 billion. And this is up from negligible millions last year. So how can in a space grow that quickly? Well, what's happened is, is that innovation is happening with this blockchain technology to allow for the creation of ownership and providence around digital assets. So digital assets are very easy to copy, which has a lot of benefits, but it also creates disincentives, right, for innovation, for creativity, because it can be easily copied. The generator of that asset doesn't get rewarded. And so this essentially what non-fungible tokens do is they assign property rights to digital assets in really interesting ways that I think is going to grow opportunities for creativity, for experiences that brands can tap into. So one of the things that happened this month was a very big announcement, which is that the National Football League is going to roll out a series of non-fungible tokens around moments that happen in the game. So you can imagine, you know, growing up watching football and watching it today, and we can anticipate in the future just amazing plays that now can be captured 
in a NFT. And it's not just there to watch, but also to collect and to be able to trade, right? And we've already seen uh, this model work extremely well with the NBA. There's a platform called the NBA Top Shot that exploded on the scene this year. And there have been more than 10 million transactions around NBA moments. These would be amazing dunks, free throws, and, and things of that nature. And sales now on that platform have exceeded $735 million. So you can imagine now taking that model, which has generated tremendous amounts of fan attention, moving into the NFL, which is obviously brings it into a whole nother league. Now, to understand the power of this, this isn't just an isolated platform. It is actually part of a broader ecosystem called Flow. Flow was invented by a company called Dapper Labs out of Vancouver. It's a company that specializes in leveraging blockchain technology in order to create these non-fungible tokens. And so they have created this specialized NFT blockchain ecosystem and many companies now, there are over 650 companies that are now building some kind of project on the Flow blockchain. So I guess what I'd like to share with you today is to not think of these NFT projects in isolation, but in the context, especially in the case of Flow, of a broader ecosystem. And just this week, they've had a very interesting and exciting event called the Flowverse, where they've invited all of the different companies that have built non-fungible token projects on this blockchain technology to share with each other, both to teach people from other projects about the other companies that are doing things on this ecosystem and to exchange non-fungible tokens. And they do this by doing raffles, by doing treasure hunts, and what they call airdrops of valuable digital assets or, or NFTs. And so it's a pretty exciting opportunity. And I think uh, speaks to what we're seeing is a convergence of both this exploration of new experiences and how do you deliver those experiences with evolutions in blockchain technology, all on top of platforms which are business models that are well-designed for a digital age that reinforce these very powerful network effects that create value by having participants join, which attracts more participants, which attracts the creators or the athletes or the musicians that contribute value, which attracts even more. So you get these virtuous cycles. And my anticipation is next year, we're going to blow through this $10 billion quarterly number in sales of NFTs. And speaking, you know, we heard a little bit about Disney. Disney is moving into NFTs. They've launched projects around uh, their Marvel portfolio, and I think will expand into a whole range of digital collectibles, which will also be used to unleash in real life experiences. So Disney has an amazing set of assets where these digital assets can be used as collections, but also Disney has lots of ways to reward those passionate fans that do a lot of collecting with in real life experiences, not only in the US, but in Europe and in Asia as well. Disney has global assets and it's got Disney Plus, all sorts of things to actually. So companies uh, of that size and scale are just beginning to dabble in this space, but we're going to see explosive growth here. Thank you, Peter. My curious and quirky topic for this month is called BNPL, Buy Now, Pay Later. Now, this has been there for a while as a concept, because when you do buy a deferred payment plan for a device, 
or your car, for example, it has always been buy now, pay later. So what makes this trend different, which is almost estimated to be a $100 billion marketplace in 2021? First, it's what we call as embedded finance. So we are able to embed a financial product seamlessly into industries instead of actually going to a financial sector company to actually have the product come to you. So here are some examples that you have seen in the news in the past month. Affirm is a buy now, pay later company with which Amazon entered into a partnership. You have Afterpay, which is a partnership with Square. And then you have Klarna, which is the biggest one. Now, here is the interesting information. Klarna has existed only from 2005 and is valued at $45 billion. As compared to Deutsche Bank, that started pretty much in 1870 and is valued at $25 billion. The difference in valuation is actually a very interesting platform network effect play by itself. But I'll come to that in a second as I walk you through the information. What is fascinating about buy now, pay later is that the percentage of Gen X and Gen Y across generations of people who are using buy now, pay later as a feature has actually doubled between 2019 and 2021. So the adoption rate as a behavior seems to be phenomenally high. Now, I was buying tickets for Lakers versus Warriors game last week. And as I was checking out, it actually had BNPL there, you know, buy now, pay later. That's the exact language they use. I got tickets to Indian Wells Tennis tomorrow on Sunday, actually, for the finals. And it had a BNPL feature, buy now, pay later feature as I was checking out. By the way, it is even available for small ticket purchases. AMC, Cinemark, all of these apps are offering that as a checkout option. What makes it fascinating is that purchasing was a post-decision feature in a buyer's mind. Buy now, pay later actually makes it before the purchasing decision is done. People gravitate towards products and services that offer buy now, pay later. So you're actually bringing a financial transaction as a marketplace offering well before even the purchasing decision is done. And that kind of thinking allows these companies to really play very differently. Now, as an example, if you are, for example, Klarna, Afterpay, all of these companies want to create their own marketplaces where every service that is embedded with buy now, pay later comes onto that platform. Amazon partnered with Afterpay and Affirm. Partly because they didn't acquire a firm because they, I think, want to learn what's going on in the marketplace. PayPal has got onto the bandwagon. So they actually introduced buy now, pay later, but they've actually introduced deferred pays without interest. Apple Pay has actually partnered with pretty much any financial services provider as a gateway to actually offer buy now, pay later. And Square, with, uh, with a product called Afterpay, a company called Afterpay, has done the same. Now, here is my curious and quirky takeaway from this. Typically, what we see is what we call as vertical network effects, a network effect within your market or consumers. For example, when you take Uber, it's riders, it's drivers, your pricing gets impacted. Therefore, you have more drivers and more riders, right? So therefore, you can reach pretty much every nook and corner on the planet to get a ride. That is vertical within the industry game. What buy now, pay later does is imagine a horizontal loop across retail, across entertainment, across sports. All of those industries have their network effects. Buy now, pay later has a network effect that cuts across all the industries. And that's why it makes it a very, very powerful concept. So if you're designing a business model and if you're offering a product to consumers, you may want to think about a network effect that cuts across your product lines, segments, and industries. You begin to leverage the network effect of an other industry as a service. And that makes BNPL very powerful.
However, there are two issues that are coming up. One, what we have noticed in U.S. is that the percentage of debt for low-income families has actually tripled due to buy now, pay later. The credit rating companies have not taken favorably to people who use it. So the credit ratings have dropped. But secondly, I think what's happened is that in many cases, the credit card companies have actually cut the credit limits by half for people using BNPL. So what it shows is the way the banks are competing with BNPL is not actually competing because when you use a BNPL, you're still using a credit card or a debit card. So the way the banks are responding to is actually negative competitive behavior because they know they control still the payment gateway in terms of the cash where it's coming from rather than innovating on a business model where a Deutsche Bank can be valued at $45 billion or a Wells Fargo or, or a Chase Bank can compete with Klarna as a global presence. So, so you see disruption through BNPL of financial services sector, but primarily making BNPL part of a buying decision, not a purchasing transaction. So that is my curious and quirky for this month. And with that, I would bring everybody back on screen. Peter, would you have any comments on today? Yeah, I want to go back to the uh, question of automation and ask if that advantages some firms over others. So it strikes me that if you're building a greenfield facility, warehouse, that you could then outfit it versus your existing one where you have to retrofit. And I, I wonder, Alan, if there's some winners or losers or some firms that are better positioned to fully take advantage of this and others, it's, it's just extremely difficult and expensive to take their existing operations and deploy these technologies. That's a really good question, as in most automation scenarios. The old method and the new method, that, that's not really the problem. It's the transition from one to the other that's always the big challenge. Warehouses do tend to run 24 hours a day, the big distribution warehouses. Manufacturing warehouses or warehouses of manufacturing companies, not so much. But the big distribution warehouses tend to run 24 hours a day. So there's not a whole lot of time to tear down the south side of the warehouse and put in, you know, new racks that are, you know, only four feet apart versus the 10 or 12 you see in most warehouses. So it's, it is that it is problematic. What we're seeing is a transition to not retrofitting existing warehouses, but to build another warehouse. So we're seeing a lot of greenfield warehouses. I sit in a community called Corona, California. There's 14 and a half million square feet of distribution facilities have been built around me just in the last three years, 36 months. And almost all of those have a high level of, of automation. And almost all of them are set up as narrow aisle, which means the aisles are only about six feet wide and they're using semi-automated equipment that runs down man-controlled, but still semi-automated equipment. So the, it turns out that it mostly you're looking at really building a new warehouse and then repurposing the old warehouse later or, you know, taking up the business in the new warehouse until you can rebuild the old one. Well, by the way, side note on that is that we're seeing manufacturing companies that every time they build a facility, the presumption is someday it may turn into a warehouse or a distribution center. And so we're building factories differently. We tend to build them big square factories as high as we can. And uh, and if you look closely, a lot of the new factories that are being built, none in California, by the way, but in the south part of the country, southern part of the country, you'll see that they actually have knockout dock doors. So the concrete actually can be pushed out of that and they can turn it into a warehouse or repurpose it much faster. So we're starting to think ahead a little bit already in terms of designs. Most real estate companies now insist 
insist on on big tilt-up concrete buildings being built um, with the potential to convert into a distribution center in the future. It's the only way to maintain the real estate value. Yeah, well, I love this idea of creating optionality, right? That's very valuable from a business perspective. <laughs> we do have a comment from one of the viewers on India. What is the difference between credit cards and BNPLs? Credit cards actually are the source of the money. These are the companies that borrow money and lend it to you. BNPL is a transaction feature that acts almost like a collection agency that is linked to the credit agency. So BNPL has fewer regulations than banking and credit card companies. That's one of the reasons why adoption is far higher. There are very few BNPL companies that actually lend cash by themselves. So, you know, Apple Pay is a good example. Apple does not lend money to you. It's a transaction gateway that makes it easy for you to spend money, but however, has a tie up with Goldman Sachs, for example. Right, so credit card and banks are basically the source of the money. BNPL is the devil that makes you spend more. That's the way I would put it. So, Hari, um, to follow up with that, do you have any idea what type of interest rates people pay when they hit that buy now, pay later button? It's an interesting question, Mary. All the advertisements and all the positioning says that BNPL has no interest fees. So my my assumption, and when I looked at some of the rates, is that does the product pricing differ if I use a BNPL versus a straight purchase or a credit card, or for that matter, a deferred loan, right? So I think the fees are built in for sure. There's no doubt about it. But I think the scale of transactions offsets some of the, the interest fees. And how late is later? When when they say later, do you have do they say in there? Six months typically is what it says. But I think the scale of it is really what offsets it. If there were 100 transactions on it now, there are a million. You have brought retailing volume and scale to financial services purchasing. That's what it has done. Yeah, so Hari, is the, so the BNPL is, to a large extent, it's a business model change that competes directly with credit card companies. Correct. We can get the, as consumers, we can get a lot of the same effect, but it's a different business model to the uh, to the credit card companies, the Visas, the MasterCards uh, of the world. Are they uh, concerned or worried about this? Yeah, but the Visa and the MasterCards enjoyed because they're still the major gateways, payment transactions globally for money to flow. So most of the merchants hate transaction fees and the payment services firms love transaction fees. So somewhere between that, those two is the balance of BNPL and how it's priced. Thank you everyone for joining today. We really appreciate that and stay safe, stay healthy, travel, enjoy the world and we'll catch you in the month of November with our Curious and Quirky. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Curious and Quirky, helping curious leaders change the world. You can attend a live Curious and Quirky session through LinkedIn Live Events. If you don't want to miss out on the next event, Follow the Curious and Quirky page on LinkedIn or listen to our podcast on Apple iTunes and Spotify. And remember, stay curious.